Hey, Harpy Hour fans. We're running a very special promotion for all of our loyal listeners. It's a merch giveaway, specifically our logo stickers, because, well, it's the only merch we have right now. But there's a catch. We're not just giving them away. You have to earn them. To get a sticker, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or any of your preferred streaming platforms. So send us a screenshot or a picture proof that you've done both of those things. So again, that's subscribing to the show and leaving a review. You can send it to any of our social media accounts at Harpy Hour Pod, or you can email it to harpyhourpodcast at gmail.com. Of course, also give us your address so we can mail you the sticker. You'll also get a shout out on social media and in an episode of the show for our thanks. And don't worry if you can only do one of those two things for whatever reason, I don't know why, do both. You'll still get a shout out, but no sticker. So make the effort. Do better. This promo is only going to last until we've given away our first 20 stickers or if this whole thing crashes and burns, whatever happens first. So hurry up, run, don't walk and get your sticker now. Also, don't forget to tell your friends because, you know, what's cooler than having matching stickers on your water bottle or a laptop? Nothing. Nothing. There's literally nothing cooler than that. Nope. So... Tell your friends, you can each get stickers, show off your friendship, and share your Harpy love. And remember, if you want to see even more Harpy Hour merch coming up, support us on Patreon. These funds will help us improve the show and grow our brand. Now, before you enjoy the episode, check out this promo for another awesome podcast to add to your list. And stick around for Harpy Hour! Hello there. I'm Erica, your host of the Les Represent podcast. We talk to female-identifying women from all walks and paths of life. We talk about anything. Their experiences, their stories, their projects, their favorite food, even their pets' names. Anything. And what do we all have in common, you ask? Well, we're all queer. And in the world when the media, society, and even our parents are telling us who we are and how to identify, sometimes we just need to speak for ourselves. So sit back, grab a snack, and listen to our conversations. Get to know someone. You might find, regardless of country, generation, or orientation, you might have more in common than you think. Oh, and sometimes my co-host will chime in with something to say. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Harpy Hour may contain explicit language, as well as graphic, violence, and sexual content. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Harpy Hour. Welcome. It's the hour of the harpies. I'm Tracy. You've become a musical, apparently. <laughs> Still Tracy. <laughs> I'm Liz. <laughs> I'm Steph. And this is our podcast where we share ridiculous stories in history, science, and entertainment. Yep. All the great things. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we All do. The Guys, I things. have some entertainment to share with you. Entertain us. Oh, I will. God. Right now. Jetpacking has entered into my regular vernacular. <laughs> so, Excellent. Excellent. I'm was, so glad I could bless you with it that. It was great. So I was like in bed with my boyfriend and he rolled over and he's like, all right, my turn, reverse spoon me. And I was like, you know, the reverse spoon is actually called the jetpack. 
He was like, what, really? So he looks it up on Urban Dictionary, and I wanted to share with you... I mean, I don't know why he doubted you. I wanted to share with you some amazing Urban Dictionary definitions, alternative definitions to jetpacking. Perfect. Top definition. To ejaculate so forcefully during intercourse that it sends the receiver flying. No. Physically impossible. (laughs) That's not a thing. Another one that I thought was horrifying. Partaking in sex through a person's shoulder blades squished together to form a sort of half pipe shape while resting the balls on the back of the neck. No, it's like the opposite of titty fucking. I feel like it doesn't sound that is the opposite of titty fucking. Oh, it is. But like you're like sitting on my head, essentially, like the he's got to be sitting on your head to make this happen. Guys, so why does it have to be on the neck? Why can't it be the other way? Why can't he be sitting on your back and shoulder fucking? Yeah, I was envisioning the other way. Like, I was too until I read about the balls on the neck. Yeah, that's a bait and switch. I don't like that. I don't I don't know why anyone would enjoy that. Either party in that situation. It just sounds like you're going to get a cramp like yes. real fast. It doesn't sound delightful for him either. To me. I don't know. Yeah. And my favorite definition, when the smaller person in the relationship is the big spoon and is farting all night long. <laughs> that's I'm me, pretty Craig. sure that's what I had in mind as like a definition I had heard before. Yeah. Like before Tracy had introduced us to the other jetpacking. So, yep. well, hers is basically the same thing minus the farting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The farting is, it doesn't seem to be a critical component, but it could be. <laughs> It could be supplemental. Well, it's just your jetpack is turned off, I guess, if you're not farting. Yeah, exactly. You're just carrying the backpack. Then it's just a backpack. Yes. Yeah, then it's he- not a jetpack if it doesn't have the expulsion of air. <laughs> that is, that is my favorite kind of back. When Craig says that, <laughs> I want to, that he wants to backpack, I'm going to tell him the definition of that. And just climb onto his back and start farting. <laughs> That's exactly what's going to happen. Oh, my God. Hopefully, I'm running like snapchat or something when this happens please please do. oh god <laughs> anyway i thought you guys would enjoy that <laughs> wanted to throw back to the jetpacking you guys i was gonna tell my mom to listen to my segment on this episode because <laughs> just tell and her, now just i really can <laughs> skip ahead to like five minutes in damn it like sorry mom <laughs> <laughs> sorry sue <laughs> all right oh, tracy god. well what are you going to talk about that you're so excited for sue lucas to hear my topic is the man behind A. Ham. Who is A. Ham? I feel like You'll we're going to find, find out. out. You'll find out. I feel like we're going to find out. You are. It's true. Hey, Liz. Yeah. What's up? What you doing today? I'm doing the saga of the silver ball. Oh. Ooh. Is it the same ball we use for jetpacking? <laughs> the one ball? <laughs> well, you know, if you're jetpacking with Lance Silver Armstrong balls. or something. <laughs> You'll find out. Silver ball, like a disco ball? I feel like Lance Armstrong would have a, a silver ball. Why would he's it only, be silver? Well, because he's only got the one and it's probably like... So we got like a, bl- a silver replacement second ball? Well, the blood is probably constricted. Like like a fake tooth, only it's a fake ball made of silver? I think silver. it would have something to do with like his medals for sports. I don't know. I feel like you don't want your ball to be that firm. 
But that's what they do with puppies when you take off their balls. Sometimes you give them fake balls so Not that they don't know. Not made of silver. Yeah they're, yeah, they're still, like, they're, like, implants. They could just be covered silver. Like, they don't need to be made of silver. It's probably like a silicone boob implant, only smaller. Yeah, it's just, like, you can spray paint it silver. Like, that's fine. <laughs> Inside the scrotum. <laughs> well, like, who's going to see it? You know, that totally safe medical grade Medical metallic silver, silver balls. Yeah, you're welcome. Paint. You're welcome. Silver balls. Silver, silver balls. balls. It's Christmas time in the scrotum. It's biking time for Lance Armstrong. <laughs> oh my god! I'm and really on that note, Steph, <laughs> <laughs> what are Is you Sue still gonna listen today? to this? I, I, I'm giving her a time code. To go okay. to. <laughs> Damn it. Uh, Liz, to answer your question, I'm going to tell you a story about young love. Aww. I feel Just like it's not going to make us go, aww, later. Yeah, this is no. <laughs> this is not going to be good. Honestly, young love sucks, anyways. Guys, where did it get mm-hmm. any of us? Especially this one. This is how I'm going to get written out of the will. Sue Lucas listening to this segment. Like I said, I'm going to be talking about the man behind A. Ham. And for those of you who have ever listened to Hamilton, you know Uh, that that man is Lin Manuel Miranda. Yeah. Okay, that was not deserved. That was a really will, great horn, stuff. You will... <laughs> you will know by the end of this segment that that was not sufficient fanfare for Mr. Miranda. Because okay. he is a god walking among us. So I want you to bear in mind this quote that I saw somewhere that I can attribute to no one. Okay. <laughs> it is... Someone said it. Yeah. We all have the same 24 hours as Lin-Manuel Miranda. And that should inspire you. Ready? Here we go. But we also don't have, like, money or... Well, neither did he. (laughs) Okay. So this will make you feel really terrible about your life. Ready? Okay. Great. The early years... Lin-Manuel Miranda, or as I refer to him because we're on a nickname basis, LMM... Yes, LMM. Sounds like a boy band. LMM. LMM was born January 16th, 1980 in New York City's Inwood neighborhood. For those of you unfamiliar with Inwood, it is a predominantly Dominican population that lives there with a median income half that of the rest of Manhattan. He was named after a Puerto Rican poem written by Jose Manuel Torres Santiago about the Vietnam War. And the phrase that he's named after is Nana Roja para mi hijo Lin-Manuel, which means red nanny for my son Lin-Manuel. I have no context for that. <laughs> his family consists of his father, Louis A. Miranda Jr., who was a Democratic Party consultant as they grew up. His mom, Dr. Luce Towns Miranda, who is a clinical psychologist, and his older sister, Luce Miranda Crespo, so two Luces, 
Luces, who is the CFO at Miram Group. And Miram Group is a government lobbying strategy and communications service started by LMM's dad 20 years ago. Family business. Yes. He also has grandparents in Vega Alta, Puerto Rico, and he would spend at least one month each year with them growing up. So that was really formative for him. His wife, Vanessa Nadal, she's a lawyer at Jones Day. She used to be his high school. She was his high school crush. Young love. I know, right? Oh, he didn't have the nerve to talk to her. So they never got together until later in life. Oh, I know. It's so adorable. She graduated from MIT and she is a former scientista. Work it, girl. Former scientista? Yeah. Well, now she's a lawyer. Oh, oh. Okay. yeah. Check that out. You mm-hmm. go, girl. Who needs just one career? Exactly. <laughs> I'm <laughs> hanging by a thread to my one, but it's fine. <laughs> they married in 2010 and they have two sons, Sebastian, who will be six in November, and Francisco, who turned two in February. So his childhood education, he went to Hunter College Elementary and Hunter College High School, where he graduated in 1999. And he had famous classmates, including Immortal Technique, the rapper who actually bullied him, but they're good now. (laughs) They've made up. Yeah, they're they're besties now. Well, not besties. Don't. Don't uh, quote me on that. Whatever. Anyway, (laughs) they're on. They're they're not enemies. They are not enemies. They've moved on from their elementary school quarrels. They have. And Chris Hayes, as in the news anchor on MSNBC. Fun fact, Chris Hayes and LMM were in a school play together. So LMM is starring in it. Chris is directing it. And here's how Chris describes it. I just lifted it right from this article. Quote, a 20-minute musical that featured a maniacal fetal pig in a nightmare that Lin-Manuel Miranda had cut up in biology class, unquote. Oh, no. Yep. <laughs> so it's basically a fever dream that LMM had about the fetal pig that he destroyed in bio. He graduates from Wesleyan University, class of 2002. During his time at Wesleyan, he finishes the first draft of what would become his first Broadway musical in the Heights during his sophomore year, because that's what everyone's doing when they're fucking 19. (laughs) So he gets accepted to the student theater company Second Stage on campus, and the show premieres in 1999, which is during his sophomore year. It wasn't until after it was accepted by Second Stage that LMM added salsa numbers and freestyle rapping numbers. So it was like, ha, huh, you already approved it. LOL. <laughs> the rest of this is going to be broken down by year because he does so much every year that I had to organize it somehow because these projects are going off in multiple directions. Okay, so we're in 2002, which is the year he graduates Wesleyan. When LMM graduated from Wesleyan, he teamed up with director and fellow Wesleyan alum, Tommy Kale, more on him later, to revise In the Heights for a Broadway stage. The musical focuses primarily on Latinx characters in the Washington Heights neighborhood. And LMM originated the role of Usnavi de la Vega, the charismatic lead character who owns the bodega at the center of the neighborhood's activities. So to recap... He wrote it, he wrote the lyrics, he wrote the music, he wrote the book, and then he starred in it. He wrote the book? 
He did. He wrote the script. A script or a book? There, like, well, did it? The, that's what. So on Broadway, they use book interchangeably with script. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. So I thought you were saying it was based off a book that he also wrote. <laughs> no, the book is the script in, okay. in Broadway circles. Yeah, okay. right. I'll allow it. You can trust me. 2003, this is the following year. LWM co-founds the freestyle rap group Freestyle Love Supreme. The group performs at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival that summer, which I referenced a couple episodes ago. Never mm-hmm. heard of it. Okay. Great. <laughs> they created a limited TV series for Pivot a couple years later, and it opened on Broadway in 2019 to positive reviews. So he founds this like rap group that eventually moves to Broadway. That was back in 2003. Okay, skip ahead a couple years. 2007. In the Heights opens off-Broadway at the 37 Arts Theater. And just for people who are not aware of the difference between off-Broadway and Broadway, the difference is the... One is Broadway, one is off of Broadway. There's a street. (laughs) It has nothing to do with the street. But good try. Off-Broadway theaters seat between 99 and 499 people in the house, whereas anything 500 and above is considered Broadway. Oh, so it refers to the amount of people in the audience. I didn't actually know that. You're welcome. See, maybe if you listen to my segment. Is that really the only factor? Like is a comedian that plays at the Warner Theater here on Broadway? It seats more than 500 people. That's specific to New York. Okay. So you can't be on Broadway anywhere else if you're not in New York. But if you're playing in New York and you're seat and your theater is 99 to 499 seats that is off broadway and you are a professional theater then you are off broadway gotcha gotcha this is also the year that lwm guest starred on an episode of the sopranos as the bellman oh mm-hmm. 2008 in the heights opens on broadway that march Goes on to be nominated for 13 Tony Awards, wins four of them, including Best Musical and Best Original Score. So that's, you know, massive wins for LWM and also the Latinx community at large because it's all about like life in this community and in this and surrounding the bodega and like the culture. So that's awesome. This is also the year that while on vacation, LWM reads Ron Chernow's biography of Alexander Hamilton and starts drafting raps. Because why wouldn't you? So is that hotel room, the room where it happened for LMM? Well, I think it was a cabana. It was a cabana, but oh. yes. <laughs> where it happened. Thank you, Seth. Okay. <laughs> 2009. LWM leaves in the Heights, like the Broadway company. He would join multiple companies across the country to open tours and will eventually close out the Broadway run as Usnavi, the lead character, in 2011. But he leaves the full-time thing. 2009 is also the year that he works with legendary composer Stephen Sondheim on Spanish translations for the Broadway revival of West Side Story for that year. This production stars LMM's former co-star from In the Heights, Karen Olivo, who will come back later. LWM 
also performs what becomes the opening number for Hamilton at the White House Evening of Poetry, Music, and Spoken Word for President Obama and all of his guests. He introduces it as, quote, an embodiment of hip-hop culture, Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton. Everyone laughed at the time. They are not laughing now. <laughs> so I've seen the video of that. Yeah. So that eventually becomes the opening, but it wasn't at that point. LWM also becomes the youngest person to receive an honorary degree from Yeshiva University that year in Washington Heights. What is Yeshiva University? It is a university. Yeah, okay. but like, why did he get an honorary degree there? What What is it in? Because it's his his community. Because it's in it's physically in Washington Heights. It's in the Latinx community. Oh, okay. 2011. LMM co-writes the music and lyrics for Bring It On the Musical. <laughs> I didn't know Bring It On became a musical. Everything's become a musical. Fun fact, I have a, I won't say friend because we don't like know each other super well, but like an acquaintance from NYU who originated a role in Bring It On the Musical and is like famous now. She was also the first Lady Olaf in Frozen on Broadway. Hi, Ryan. I'm sure you're listening. Thanks. Bring It On the Musical premieres in Atlanta that January and begins touring in October. This is also the year that LWM appears on Modern Family as Guillermo. I didn't remember him on Modern Family. He was just a guest star. Oh. 2012. Bring It On the Musical opens for a limited engagement on Broadway from July to December. It's nominated for Best Musical and Best Choreography at the Tony Awards and wins none of them. Oh. <laughs> womp womp. Womp. LWM has started publicly performing pieces that later become part of the score of Hamilton. At the time, he is referring to them as the Hamilton mixtape. The New York Times refers to the Hamilton mixtape as an obvious game changer. Hmm. So that's 2012. 2013, LMM appears in an all-verse episode of How I Met Your Mother as Gus, who raps with Marshall to try to lull baby Marvin to sleep on the bus to Farhampton. Oh, I don't... I remember that episode. I don't remember him being in it. He was. I mean, I, I believe you. You should. 2014. LMM receives an Emmy for the Tony Awards opening song that he co-wrote with Thomas Hitt called Big Thomas Kitt, sorry, called Bigger, which was performed by the host Neil Patrick Harris. So he wins an Emmy that year and BD. LMM writes and performs in a musical called 21 Chump Street, which is a a 14 minute musical based on NPR's This American Life episode number 457 called What I Did for Love. The synopsis is that high school senior Justin LeBoy falls in love with a cop who is undercover at his school to bust drug dealing. He ends up buying this cop drugs, not knowing that she's an undercover cop, in an attempt to impress her and ask her to the prom. Oh, I remember that story of This American Life. Mm -hmm. I listened to that one. LMM writes a musical version of that. It's 14 minutes long. It's performed once at the Brooklyn Academy of Music in New York, and then it's rebroadcast on NPR's This American Life that June. This is also the first time that Anthony Ramos works with LMM. Anthony Ramos shows up in Hamilton and also is part of the In the Heights movie musical coming out later in 2021. Also this year, LMM stars in the revival of Tick, Tick, Boom off Broadway, 
also co-stars with Karen Olivo again. Music and lyrics by Jonathan Larson, who wrote Rent. And it's the story of three struggling artists in New York City in 1990. So good year for LMM. It only gets better. 2015. Hamilton, an American musical, opens off-Broadway in January. It's directed by Tommy Kale, who I mentioned earlier. He's the alum who also directed In the Heights. It's sold out completely, the entire engagement. And LMM and Ron Chernow, who wrote the biography of Alexander Hamilton, receive History Makers Award from the New York Historical Society for their work on the show. Hamilton starts previews on Broadway that July and then opens in August. Obviously, Lin-Manuel is playing Hamilton this whole time. So again, he wrote it. He wrote the music, the lyrics, the book, and now he's starring in it. Same thing. At the same time, LMM is working on the music for Disney's Moana. He did the music for Moana? He did all yeah. the music for Moana. I didn't know that. I did. That I is true. It. Oh my God, I love Moana. I he know. sings one of the songs too, right? He does, yeah. He performs in Thank You. Or I'm sorry, not You're Welcome. He performs in You're Welcome. <laughs> what is. What part is he in You're Welcome? Is that. What can the I rock say? Except yeah, but doesn't the rock you're say welcome. that? Uh, he does a portion of it. Oh. Oh. It's seamless. I didn't yeah. realize it was two different voices. Yep. He also sings in We Know the Way. We Know like the yeah. Way. Yep. Yeah, that one. It's the end, right? He's the lead singer in that one. Oh, cool. Do, 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 do. Yeah, that. Okay. <laughs> so the movie comes out in 2016, but he's working on it during 2015, obviously. The album went platinum twice in the US, and Lin-Manuel personally receives the following award nominations for the song, How Far I'll Go. He receives a nomination for the Golden Globe, Critics' Choice, an Oscar, and a Grammy. Damn. Just for, one for that song. song. One song. It's a good song. It's a great song. Oh, here's something I didn't know. Lin-Manuel Miranda, during 2015, he wrote the song in the cantina for Star Wars The Force Awakens. That's I think I also Miranda. Knew that. I did not know that one. I did not know that. This is also the year that he receives an honorary Doctor of Humane Letters from his alma mater, Wesleyan University, and gives the commencement address. And also the year that he receives the MacArthur Foundation's Genius Grant, which is $625,000 over five years, which comes out to $125,000 per year. Jeez. Yeah. Of course, none of this compares to 2016. Hamilton, the Revolution is published. So that is a book. And the documentary Hamilton's America premieres at the New York Film Festival. Hamilton also wins every award known to man. And here are some of them. It has the most Tony nominations of any show ever. Wow. It didn't win the most because it was nominated twice in some categories. So obviously you can't win twice for things like best featured actress in a musical. Two actresses from Hamilton were nominated. Oh, things like that. Best lead actor in a musical. It was both 
Leslie Odom Jr. who plays Aaron Burr and Lin-Manuel Miranda. So Leslie Odom Jr. won that one. Obviously, you can't have two winners. So it has the most Tony nominations of any show ever. The Producers is still the musical with the most Tony wins. Gotcha. So the most notable Tonys that Hamilton won is Best Musical, obviously, Best Original Score, and Best Book of a Musical. That's the name of the award, Book of a Musical. (laughs) Hmm. This whole book thing is really throwing me. Well, I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) You have a word for it. It's a script. Use your own. Use that word. It's interchangeable. LMM's famous speech, Love is Love is Love, also happens on that Tony night. He gave that speech as his acceptance speech for, I believe, best original score was when he did the love is love is love speech because it was the day after the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando. Oh, yeah. Hamilton also won a Grammy Award for the best musical theater album. It went platinum six times in the U.S. Can I ask a stupid question? Six fucking times. What? What does it actually mean to go platinum? How do you like go the number platinum? of record sales? Yeah, it's based on the number of record sales. So how do you get it more than one time? Is it like in a specified number of t- like per month or something like that? So or? let's say that, uh, you know, the bar is a million record sales. Okay. That makes you go platinum. Okay, so if you, you break sell that. six million records, then you've gone platinum. Oh, six times. I see. Okay, gotcha. Gotcha. Mm hmm. So you've met that goal six times. Gotcha. Correct. I thought it was just you met it and you passed it. So how do you meet it again? You've already did that. So I get it. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. No problem. LMM also personally wins the Pulitzer Prize for Drama, Ooh. as well as the Drama League Distinguished Performance Award for his actual performance. So the Pulitzer Prize for the book, quote unquote, and mm. then the Drama League Distinguished Performance Award for his portrayal of alexander hamilton this is also the year that lmm receives an honorary doctorate of the arts from university of pennsylvania and delivers their commencement address all these honorary degrees yeah he's just swimming in honorary he's, degrees yeah yeah and he really is awards want to be associated with him at this point yeah they really just want to get on that lin-manuel like but yes they are like riding the his coattails and be like i know you never heard of us but we'll we'll give you a degree exactly exactly well, the one was relevant because it was his uh, right, alma right. mater. Yeah. Penn is an Ivy, so that makes sense. Yeshiva is kind of out of nowhere, but whatever. It's like geographically relevant. LMM also appears on an episode of Last Week Tonight with John Oliver this year uh, to talk about the Puerto Rican debt crisis. He's very passionate about Puerto Rico. He has been very passionate about Puerto Rico. He's been very vocal about it since uh, Hurricane Maria. So he raises a lot of funds for them. He does all kinds of stuff since that's he considers it his second hometown because that's where he grew up with his grandparents. LMM also tells the story of Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr on Drunk History for Comedy Central that year. I need more of that show. Ah, so good. (laughs) So good. 2018. LMM stars as Lamplighter and Burt's Apprentice Jack in the Disney film Mary Poppins Returns with Emily Blunt. I did not know that. I have not seen so that that's movie him. yet. Mm-hmm. That's him. I've never seen Mary Poppins. Not well, even the original? The s- I've yeah. never seen it. Nope. Oh. That's weird. Yeah. Do they not have happiness in New Jersey and childhood? <laughs> we actually, 
owned it, I think. I just never watched it. Okay, well, that's your homework, because that's weird. I feel like now it's just not going to hold up. I'm 32. You are never too old for Mary Poppins, (laughs) ma'am. How dare you? And then 2018 is also the year that the book... Good Morning, Good Night, Little Pep Talks from Me to You is published. And that's based on LMM's Twitter feed. <laughs> he just tweets like happy, like, okay, good morning. Like, you're looking in the mirror. That person's pretty cool. Like, that kind of stuff. Is it like a, is it like a novel or just like a coffee table book? It's a coffee table book. Just like full of his random quotes. His tweets. Mm-hmm. It just makes you feel good. Gotcha. <laughs> okay. 2019, LMM makes a cameo as a resistance trooper in Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. Hmm. I don't think I realized that. I know. This is also the year that he appears as Amy Santiago's brother David on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I don't remember that. I don't remember either. her brother David. The Golden Child, she's like, it's, oh, it's the Golden Child yeah. episode where she's like, David is perfect. David does this. Da, 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 yeah. da. That's Lin-Manuel Miranda. I vaguely remember it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's him. The year 2020. Original Broadway cast taping of Hamilton airs on July 3rd because America. Also, that's the same day that the character Nina from In the Heights comes back from Stanford because mind blown. Anyone who's seen In the Heights will get that reference. Whatever. You get, yeah, I don't lost know. On, I don't know it's lost on about. you two. I thought there was going to be more after the words mind blown. I thought you were. No. Yeah, there was more like making, making the connection. I thought there was like a, dr- <laughs> like a dramatic pause. And I'm like, and? Just because this is wasted on you two doesn't mean that there's not someone listening who deserves that connection. All right. Okay. It's fine. Let's all edit it out. No. <laughs> no. If that's I will I will yell at you in post. You won't know because you don't listen. Yeah, I thought you were gonna say I will listen to this episode. I will. <laughs> Cause you don't listen to the I other. will and I will write an angry letter. That will be my test, Liz. I'm gonna test Tracy by to see if she listens by cutting that out and seeing her reaction. I just told you I'm gonna listen. Mm-hmm. So you said she'll forget in a month. She'll forget by that. No, I won't. I'm. I am writing it down right now in my reminders. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't it's have happening. to because you should be listening every week. You can cut this part out. <laughs> <laughs> Regardless. Won't. So, fun fact: LMM had to quote give two fucks in order to get the recording of Hamilton a PG-13 rating and make it accessible to everyone. Yeah, Yeah. the more than one fuck is an automatic R rating and so that would have limited its distribution on Well, it's almost like I am explaining that in my segment, Elizabeth. I'm engaging. She just wants to talk at us. No, I'm (laughs) explaining it. I have notes. So, there are three fucks in the show. And the way that it works is that anything over one gives you an R rating. So he wants to make sure that it's accessible to all the little theater babies out there who want to watch his show. So he had to cut two of them. But the one in Say No to This, which is the number about Hamilton's affair, that one is still in there. And that's the most important one. So it's fine. 
How do they cut? Do they just like, is it blank? Or there's a record scratch. Okay. So there's a, there's a record scratch for one of them. For the other one, I believe he said there's going to just be like a, a blank or a sensor or like a. Just muted or something. Yeah. But he did tweet saying that there's nothing stopping you from singing it aloud at home. (laughs) (laughs) Which you best believe I will be doing. 2020 is also the year that John Bolton named his book about Trump's corruption, The Room Where It Happened. Yes. To which Lin-Manuel Miranda tweeted this response. Actually, because you two don't know lyrics, I'm going to say the original one, and then I'll say the quote. So the original lyric is, let me tell you what I wish I'd known when I was young and dreamed of glory. You have no control who lives, who dies, who tells your story. So that's the original. Okay. Here's what Lin-Manuel tweeted. Let me tell you what I wish I'd known when I was young and dreamed of glory. You have no control who lives, who dies, who borrows your song title to write a cash in book that they could have testified before Congress tells your story. (laughs) (laughs) It's perfect. Can he like, does he have copyrights over that? title like Uh, apparently not (laughs) i mean everyone knows what it's from like right but like you'd think that he wouldn't be allowed to give it that title without i don't know i'm i I am not a copyright lawyer so i cannot speak to that listeners if you're a copyright lawyer get at us curious harpy hour podcast at gmail.com thanks (laughs) some more fun facts about lin-manuel miranda He worked as an English teacher at his former high school while writing restaurant reviews for the Manhattan Times before he made it big. Hmm. Super random. Best English teacher ever. He performed once as the Loud Hailer in the Broadway production of Les Miserables because it was a bucket list item for him to be in that show because it was the first one he ever saw. Was it? What is that role? Is that just like the hailer? It's like stage. Yeah, it's off stage, and he goes, "You at the barricade, listen to this. Nobody's coming to help you to fight." And it's really like passionate, but nobody sees him, which is why they gave him that part for one performance, just for funsies. Oh, it was like he wasn't normally that person. They just let him fill in one day just to live his dream. Correct. Gotcha. Aw, I know. LWM wrote the jingle for New York Governor Elliot Spitzer's 2004 campaign. Super random. Benjamin Franklin had a country rock song that was cut from Hamilton. There's no Benjamin Franklin in Hamilton. But he was. He was huh. there. Mm-hmm. LWM is only missing the Oscar in PGOT, which stands for Pulitzer, Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. And when he gets it, he'll be one of three people ever to achieve it. The others being composers Richard Rogers and Marvin Hamlish. I don't wow. know the Pulitzer was part of that. I've heard of the EGOT, like getting all four. The EGOT, yes. But the PGOT has only been reached by two people so far. Because wasn't that a thing in 30 Rock? EGOT. That, tra- that Tracy wanted to achieve? Yeah. Yes, the EGOT. Yes. <laughs> well... LMM has a pigot almost, almost when he gets an Oscar. He has a pigot. He has a pig. Pigot. Pigot. 
LMM has a dog from the Dominican Republic named Toby. His full name is Tobio, which means ankle in Spanish. An interesting choice. I yeah, I couldn't find any more. Is he a small dog? That. Is it like an ankle biter? He is. He's a very small dog. It's an ankle biter. <laughs> I mean, that's what I assumed, but I couldn't verify that. <laughs> so that's that. And then finally, his son Sebastian is in fact named after the crab in the Little Mermaid. Oh, I know <laughs> that's real. The conclusion is that none of us deserve Lin Manuel Miranda on this earth, and we are all slugs in comparison. <laughs> You're welcome. That's my segment. I'm really excited slash nervous. Oh, God. Why are you nervous? <laughs> I don't I don't know. We've done this 26 times. Now I'm nervous if she's nervous. <clears throat> clearing her throat. Oh my Ever God. since I was a young boy, I've played the silver ball. From Soho down to Brighton. I must have played them all, but I ain't seen nothing like him in any amusement hall. That deaf oh. blind kid sure plays a mean, mean pinball. pinball. <laughs> oh my god. He's a pinball wizard. Thank you. Thank you. That's Pinball Wizard by The Who. Yes. And <laughs> yes. Part of the musical Tommy. Continue. Yeah, from rock opera Tommy, which is yes. just absolutely absurd. But it's ridiculous. Pinball it's Wizard is like the most known song if you're not familiar with the musical rock opera. I'm not. It's absurd. It's just like a rock classic. You yes. haven't heard that song? Oh my God, it's so good. Mm-hmm. That deaf diamond blanket show sure plays a mean pinball. Oh, I love it so much. Um, actually, my favorite rendition of the song is from The Sing-Off, which was that music show for acapella yes, groups. And with like, Nick Lachey. Yeah, he hosted. And uh-huh. the Dartmouth Airs did an yes, acapella did. of the song. And oh. I had that on loop as I was researching. Yes. My segment about pinball. It's based on the French game called Bagatelle. I'm probably not saying that the very French way. <laughs> but it I don't know. A, you're the French speaker of us, so <laughs> you're the closest, probably. It's, it's just like, it's, not good. I don't know how to like. I don't know. It's it, I can't put it together. But it's a table game where players scored points by getting balls past obstacles into holes. So it's kind of a modified version of both like billards, like a pool table, mm-hmm. and um, also it's been related to like a tabletop version of croquet. Or cricket, mm-hmm. one of those. Croquet. I, mean, I guess I don't know. There's different rumors on how it started, like if it actually came from billards or if it came from like people not wanting to play croquet out in the rain, and so they made this version to play like indoors. But it looked very similar to a pool table, like that, like kind of green felt and kind of like pool balls and little tiny cue sticks. Okay. But in 1871, a man named Montague Redgrave. He was British, but had like moved to the States and was based in Ohio. He was granted the U.S. patent for, quote, improvements to Bagatelle. So he didn't even have like a new name for his invention. It was just like Bagatelle, but better. It just occurred to me that I was like, how do I know the word Bagatelle? It's from Les Miserables. Like, oh, that, that makes do they sense. they play it in that? Yeah. It, well, it's uh, the lyric is this Bagatelle. And they're talking about like, the necklace that Fontaine has. This bagatelle, Madame, I'll sell it to you. Okay. 
Anyway, well, continue. Why is it a necklace? Well, I don't. I don't know. I, I don't know. It's the Neither French. Do I don't know. I. Okay, cool. Keep going. <laughs> uh, so improvements to Bagatelle is uh, a little bit smaller, so now it can like fit on top of a bar or countertop. And it now uses a plunger to launch the ball instead of in the past, you would just kind of like drop it in and maybe use a cue stick. So now it has a little plunger to shoot it onto the table. And it also has smaller balls. So instead of balls like pool or for billards, he shrank it down to like marbles. Okay. And so this version, this improvements to Bagatelle is acknowledged as being like the birth of the modern pinball machine. Hmm. Or a pinball game, I should say, maybe. What year are we in right now? So this is 1871. Okay. And so it basically works like that for a long time. It transforms like little bit by little bit. But in 1931, we are introduced with the first coin-operated pinball machine. And so this kind of like revolutionizes the game. The first one was by like a manufacturer, Gottlieb, and it's called the Baffle Ball. And it sold for $17.50, which in today money is $320. Damn. To buy like this pinball machine. Oh, okay, that's fine. The whole machine, that not surprising. Yeah. It costs a penny and you get five or seven balls. So drugstore owners tavern bars they would buy these coin-operated pinball machines to have in their establishments and they would quickly recover their costs because if it costs a penny so basically if only five people played it once per day then their machine is paid for within a year that's not bad yeah but most likely they met that much faster because people play more than one game probably more than five people played in a day so i just kind of threw that out there for reference yeah perspective yeah so basically after that every penny that goes into the game is profit nice so now it's not just like a hobby or something people have in their home it's changed gears a little bit and this is introduced so 1931 we're in the great depression and this is a time where americans are looking for cheap entertainment so they respond very favorably to the pinball machine like it's simple it costs a penny it's something that livens their lives up a bit during this time. It's the simple pleasures. Yeah. When life is shit. Not at all like what we're going through <laughs> right now. I feel like a pinball machine would not sustain people these days. We've advanced too far beyond that. Well, it doesn't, and we'll get there. So in the early pinball games, it is, even in 1931, the version that they have isn't quite like the ones that we might be familiar with. So the early pinball machines don't have flippers, so those little things at the end with the buttons that you flick to shoot the ball back mm-hmm, up the mm-hmm, table. Mm-hmm. Those didn't exist. So really the game is like you you shoot these balls once onto the table and then it's entirely a game of chance where they go. So you don't really have the ability to control the balls at that point. So you can't be good at it necessarily because exactly. it's just luck. Exactly. Yeah. It's not even like you're playing a game then. I mean, you're doing something. Watching it. You can, like the only ways that you can manipulate, which are not really reliable, are like you could bump it to kind of like you see people Mm -hmm. like hip chuck it or try to tilt the table. But that's difficult and not very like precise. Also cheating. Yeah. But But so it's not a game of skill. You don't, like Mm -hmm. you said, Tracy, you don't have to be good at it. It's a game of chance. And so that relates it to things like 
kind of a roulette wheel or Mm -hmm. a slot machine where you just kind of like hope for the best and it's just like odds. Yeah. Whether they're in your favor or not at that given time, you know, you can't control it. So people would come and place wagers. I was going to say the only way you could make it more like a game like roulette would be to make it a betting thing. Yeah. And that's what they did. Mm. So people would place wagers and then also you could get prizes for how like well you performed. So the holes on the board had points. Mm-hmm. You could get, depending on the establishment, anything from cigars, free drinks, additional game credits. So like you don't have to pay to, to mm-hmm. play more. And of course, money. So even though the machines say for amusement only. So i.e. like... <laughs> Not for gambling. Gambling like, this is just, me. you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very when amused I win. by the money I am accruing. But so even though it was clear that like you're not supposed to be using this for gambling, everybody knows that the storekeeper would pay up. I don't think that's clear. I think that's what the intent is for amusement only. I think maybe at the time it was a well-established thing like that this mm-hmm. meant like this has a very restrictive purpose. Kind of like I always I get those like soda cans or things from like food trucks or something. It'll be like, this item's not for resale. Uh, Cause like yeah. they buy it in bulk from like, right. you know, and then they're not supposed to break it up into their individual things and resell it, but they do. But they do. Yeah. So basically, you know, just like gambling. So if you lose, like there goes your pennies, but if you win, the establishment would give you some sort of prize. And this worked for the establishment because theoretically this was a game of chance. So it's not like you could come in and like wipe the establishment clean because you're an amazing pinball player. Right. You know, it kind the of house like always wins, friends. The house <laughs> always wins. Yeah. So, you know, it worked out for them. However, law enforcement and civic groups started to look askance at pinball because of its gambling connections. And also churches and school boards started to argue that it corrupted the morals of America's children. (laughs) It encouraged them to steal coins to play, also to skip school to play, and even go hungry by like wasting their lunch money. Well, obesity wouldn't be a problem if we were using the kids were allowed to gamble more. (laughs) Problem solved. You're welcome. Let the children gamble. (laughs) (laughs) One of the sort of leaders, we'll say, in the movement against pinball machines was New York City Mayor LaGuardia. Like the airport? Yes. Hmm. He believed that pinball bred crime and juvenile delinquency. Basically, like the way when I was reading it, it was like as bad as doing drugs. Like this is the gateway to, you know, going to hell. I mean, I'd rather my kid play pinball than like shoot up. Yeah. Personally. So it also didn't help pinball's image that most of the machines were manufactured in Chicago, which was a hotbed of organized crime. So it's alleged that the mob controlled a large segment of the industry and pinball was even linked to the notorious Murder, Inc. game. People thought that like every game that you played on pinball, like the mob was benefiting from it. Okay. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. In 1941, the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor also had a very big impact on pinball. How? How? 
I don't understand. <laughs> She's going to tell us how. I know, but I'm just so anxious. America was to going know. to war and we needed to not waste materials or time. And pinball was seen as a waste of both. So pinball machines required copper, aluminum, and nickel to manufacture. And also just like engaging in frivolous pinball playing was wasting individuals' hard-earned money and also time that they could be spending towards like helping America. So he believed it was, quote, (laughs) infinitely preferable that the metal in these evil contraptions be manufactured into arms and bullets, which can be used to destroy our foreign enemies. Oh, my God. So he used Pearl Harbor to leverage his personal war against pinball. So to be clear, rather than having our children enjoy a harmless game of chance, we would prefer that we use those materials to arm them and send them overseas to kill the Japanese. I assume they don't want to arm those children, but just nope, American children. <laughs> nope, it is child soldiers arm going their parents. To if you are caught playing pinball, that is the uh, punishment is you become a child soldier in Japan. <laughs> Mayor Tracy's <Yep. laughs> an eye for an eye. That's it. You got it. So LaGuardia went to the city council and they approved a ban on pinball machines in public spaces. And on January 21st, 1942, police squads in New York raided candy stores, bowling alleys, bars, and amusement centers like arcades. Did they really not have anything else to do? Like, (laughs) were there not actual criminals at this point? Yeah, it seems like there has to be something else that you could focus attention on. Literally anything else. That's all there is. So they confiscated 2,000 machines, which is estimated to be about one-fifth of all of the machines in the city. Okay. So they're not even doing a good job. Go ahead. I mean, 2,000. It's a lot. And this That's is one 20%. day, so maybe they get to more, like, you know, in the weeks to come. I'm just saying 80% of those pinball machines are still out there. Mm-hmm. Wreaking havoc. They get mm-hmm. 20%, and LaGuardia and other police chiefs assemble the press. So this is very reminiscent of, um, like, Prohibition era when authorities would confiscate, like, illegal liquor. They would make a spectacle out of, like, smashing the bottles or like axing the keg and publicly dumping the contents out like as a display to everybody like look Mm -hmm. what happens yeah your next pinball machine he assembles the press and he smashes the pinball machines with a sledgehammer my god this is so extra so extra there's definitely nothing else more important happening The remnants were loaded into garbage barges and dumped in Long Island Sound. So thanks for that. Thanks for polluting, bro. Poor Long Island Sound. Yeah, what the fuck? (sighs) Well, it's Long Island. It's okay. And then he makes this statement, which is very Trumpian. He boasts that the hardwood legs from the machines would be fashioned into police billy clubs, which are perfect for beating the heads of the nefarious operators. I'm going to use the phrase nefarious operators from now on. Can't say that. Nefarious operators. I'm going to refer to the cats as nefarious operators (laughs) from now on. 
So soon afterwards, other cities, including Milwaukee, Chicago, New Orleans, and Los Angeles, all follow New York's lead, and they also ban pinball. In other cities, it's so a little bit stupid. less restrictive. So in Washington, D.C. Like all the things. I know, right? Other cities, such as Washington, D.C., they prohibit children from playing it during school hours. So they didn't ban it entirely. So it's more so it's not like a ban on pinball. It's just like a ban on skipping school. And they just that's like fair. use the pinball machines to catch you because they figure that's where kids are going to go when they skip school. But so otherwise, after school hours, you were still allowed to play it. And like if you weren't a child, you could also go play. Okay. I thought like that's fair. In Oakland, California, so cops who confiscated pinball machines then gifted them to other cops in Alameda. <laughs> what? <laughs> you can't have it, but I'm going to use it. Yeah. I'm going to play it. Like, uh, <laughs> this is Craig, like, confiscating our future children's video games. And then playing them themselves. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Playing them in his secret locked man cave. Yes. So the machines weren't illegal everywhere, just like, you know, kind of those few hotspot cities. So the manufacture of machines continued. And in 1947, this is when we get the flipper. And this changes really the scope of the game dramatically, because now with the flipper, you're adding more interaction between the user and the balls. Well, now it's actually a skill game. Exactly. Now it's like testing your reflexes. You can really manipulate the ball and you can control the outcome. Mm -hmm. So now it's not chance anymore. So this theoretically would sort of impact the whole gambling scenario. You know, storekeepers or, you know, barkeepers were less likely to pay out because now you could just come in and like clean them dry. You get good at the game. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So theoretically now it's not a gambling machine anymore, but some people are still like all angry about it. By this point, when the flippers introduced, LaGuardia had died, but his anti-pinball legacy still lived on. So in 1950, Congress passed the Johnson Act, which banned interstate shipment of, quote, gambling devices. So gambling devices meant not just the machine itself, but any like parts for repair or things like manuals, like user or repair manuals. Mm. Couldn't be shipped interstate except to states in which the device was legal so up until then basically like yes it was illegal in some areas but as a manufacturer like you could still sell to somebody that lived in that area and the legal liability would be on the person buying and owning it Mm. so like i could sell it and like that's not my problem like it's just up to you you're going to be the one who would be caught having it illegally right it's not on the person that sold it But so the Johnson Act now also puts the legal liability on like the manufacturers and distributors. Mm. So you're responsible for not distributing to those uh, impacted areas. Okay. So it maintained its seedy reputation for decades, which meant it also kind of had like an underground culture. So, you know, like secret back rooms and basements and stuff like that. For pinball. To keep them hidden. Yeah. It continued to also be politicized. So during the 1960 presidential election, the Republican Party tried to smear Democratic candidate JFK by releasing a photograph in which JFK is pictured with a silent partner in an Indiana pinball manufacturing operation. So they're trying to be like, oh, look at JFK. Like he has ties to pinball. (laughs) Don't vote for him. (laughs) Dirty pinball. (laughs) 
underhanded <laughs> pinball. <God>. Damn. <laughs> yeah. And then JFK's administration also took a stance on pinball uh, by targeting. There shouldn't the- be stances on pinball. <laughs> like, yeah, like a thing. What is? <sighs> there shouldn't be a stance. <laughs> so his administration targeted the interstate shipments of pinball machines as part of its campaign against organized crime. So basically just like enforcing the Johnson Act. So I they made like, it a point like, to be like, we're doing this. sounds like scandals back then were just so benign compared they to the shit we deal with now. <laughs> like now we're dealing with like two different candidates accused of sexually abusing women Versus this guy who was, like, taking a photo of him in a pinball factory. Like, oh, my God. I mean, to be fair, like, JFK was also kind of, you know. But that wasn't the scandal at the time. The scandal was the pinball. Well, I think it's a scandal now because we're trying to, like, value women. But that's not the point. That's super not the point. Pinball! (laughs) So despite all of these anti-pinball regulations, the manufacturing and distribution restriction only applied to areas where the states had prohibited it, which were just a few. And so pinball industry did continue to thrive nonetheless. And during the 50s and 60s, the pinball industry made more money than the American film industry was making in the same time period. Wow. That's bizarre. That's unexpected. Just to sort of insert this into history now that we're here, we're in the time period where The Who comes out with Pinball Wizard. Yay! So this is 1969. It's worth noting, though, that The Who is a British band. and They are. So the UK did not have the history with pinball that we had in the US. Um, I think the only stipulation at the time in the UK was just that you couldn't be paid out by the owners for your winnings, but that wasn't really enforced. So there was no crackdowns or anything like you could still own the okay. machines. You could play the machines. Nobody was coming after you. Like technically it was quote for amusement only, but nobody really followed that. And also nobody cared <laughs> as they shouldn't. It just seems like they were prioritizing better. Yeah. Yes. Like, <laughs> focus your energy literally anywhere else. So fortunately, by this time, things were starting to look up for pinball in the U.S., and it was starting to gain more acceptability. In 1974, the California Supreme Court ruled that pinball, now that it had the flippers, even though it had the flippers at this point for like two decades, they finally made the decision to recognize it as a game of skill instead of chance and overturned its prohibition in Los Angeles. And then they all lived happily ever after? Not quite. Oh. We get there, but it's, it does take a little bit of time. Oh. So in New York, like in response to the Supreme Court's decision in California, a councilman in New York says, on the surface, it appears to be an innocent sort of device, but it will bring rampant vice and gambling back to the city. So he's still just convinced it? that it's, <laughs> you know, it's still going to be a problem. So now the industry, like the pinball industry, needs to prove to New York that pinball is, in fact, a game of skill and not chance. Okay. The Amusement and Music Operators Association recruits one of the top players in the country to demonstrate the machine to a Manhattan courtroom. Okay. This man is named Roger Sharp. And so the courtroom is full of elected officials and the media and a pinball machine. 
Can't forget the pinball machine. <laughs> and so... It's crucial. Roger Sharp says, look, there's skill. Because if I pull the plunger back just right, the ball will, I hope, go down this particular lane. And this is essentially what's kind of considered to be the Babe Ruth moment of baseball. Okay. So if you know, uh, like classic Babe Ruth would come up to the plate. Tracy, oh, you yeah, might not he'd know. point to where he's going <laughs> to... Yeah. He yeah. He'd point his bat out to the outfield somewhere and and you know everybody go, "Oh god." And then and then he would hit a home run and it would go exactly where he pointed. Mhm. And so that's essentially what Roger Sharp is doing here. He's saying that like, you know, the old way I would just shoot this and who knows where the ball would go, but because I'm skilled and this is a game of skill and I can control and manipulate mm-hmm. this game, like, I'm going to shoot it, and the ball's going to go here. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Okay. So now with this evidence, the council finally decides to overturn the ban in New York. Yay! There is one stipulation, which is, I guess no! is reasonable. It's not a big deal. Everyone's still allowed to play. But now you have to license your pinball machine. For $50, which is just like a flat rate. So you just have to like get a license to register your pinball machine. Why? That seems, I mean, that's silly, but fine. It's like paying a tax to the city, like registering your car. Seems like a money making scheme. I mean, yeah. Well, yeah. They're like, well, we don't really want to have pinball, but if we're gonna like, let's make money off of it. These are politicians. (laughs) I mean, I'm not going to hate that bad. It's basically like a fee for registering your car. The way I see it. I mean, all right, fine. That's livable. So other barriers around the country began to fall after this. However, it was still banned in Oakland right up until 2014 and in one town in Indiana until 2016. Why? I don't know for sure, but I can only assume that there were just like legacy laws. Like nobody had been enforcing those. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, And then at one point somebody pointed out like, this is stupid. (laughs) We should formally dissolve this. Hey, did you know this law is still in effect? Yeah. (laughs) That makes sense. So the pinball industry peaked in 1979 with the sale of 200,000 machines. And just as it was starting to gain, you know, full, complete acceptance in the U.S., we got video games. Oh. Now that we have technology we see a decline in pinball. So video games required fewer repairs because they're technical and not as mechanical. And in like arcades or bars, they also take up less floor space because they're more Mm -hmm. vertical as opposed to a pinball table is Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a bit more horizontal. That makes sense. So it takes up more square footage. Poor pinball. Yeah. So um, nowadays, only one manufacturer of pinball machines remains. Oh, According to the International Flipper Pinball Association, which is the association that operates the world pinball player ranking, because, you know, we have that. Seems like it. (laughs) There are more than 1,800 pinball tournaments a year across the country that offer more than one million in cash prizes. So it's still a moneymaker. It might not be as popular as it used to be, but we should all get in on this. I was going to say, how do I become a pinball wizard? You have to play by intuition and sense of smell. It's just so surprising that it's still that popular when there's so many other games out there now. I think it's, it's very, like, niche. Like, Yeah. 
But I bet the community that's into it is like super into it. Probably. Yeah. Toby got like a little crowd of old passionate followers. Like the furries. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Young Love. We're going to talk about someone named Malachi Love Robinson. Oh, is he young and in love? No. I hate well, the of. name Malachi because it's Ooh, just yeah. that ginger kid from, um, what's that movie? Children of the Corn. Oh, yeah. He's like the mm-hmm, devil mm-hmm, and he's mm-hmm. like tall, skinny and gingery and he just yells like yep. Malachi all the time. Yep. With like a sickle. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. This or is not a ginger. Terrifying. Yeah. Whatever <laughs> Ugh, the called. This Malachi is not a ginger. Also, I always almost say Molokai every time because that's the island here in Hawaii. <laughs> so oh, that's going to happen. Cool. Mm-hmm. cool. It might cool, happen. Cool. Yeah. Okay, great. Malachi was born on May 12th, 1997. Oh, he's a baby. Yeah. He's a baby. That's what. He, do you know what he was in 2015 and 2016? A baby. No, because math is hard. Go ahead. A baby, a teenager. Do you know okay. what he was not in 2016? A doctor. A doctor? He was not a doctor. Yay! <laughs> not was a motherfucking doctor. Was he ever a doctor? I mean, same Z's Malachi. I mean, he's <laughs> currently 23. Still not a doctor. Oh, that's a bummer. He wanted to be a doctor when he grew up. He just wanted to skip the growing up. You're not allowed to do that. <laughs> nope. Neil Patrick Harris did that. Fun facts, in an interview, someone asked him about Doogie Hauser, and he's like, who's that? I never heard about this guy. Oh, <laughs> uh, so he wasn't even modeling it off of anyone. When you're a teenage doctor, like, you don't have time to watch other oh, child clearly. doctors. Mm-hmm. Oh, he mm-hmm. had to be pretty damn busy if he became a doctor at 18. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This story takes place in Palm Beach, Florida, because, because of, course, of course it does. Florida. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. They need more doctors. Mm, Not this badly. (laughs) In the spring of 2015, Malachi Love Robinson walked into St. Mary's Medical Center, found a random white coat just laying around, and put it on and began walking around presenting himself as a resident doctor. Does that mean there's another doctor that's walking around naked? I mean, doctors wear things underneath their white coats. (laughs) It's not like a sexy trench coat. Trench coat washer. I do not believe that. (laughs) Nope. Well, that would mean that if he was not wearing the coat when Malachi took it, he was already naked somewhere. Or she. Yeah. The coat said anesthesiology on it. And he reportedly would tell people when he was walking around that he's been practicing medicine for years. Just like volunteering that information to people. <laughs> Hi. I'm definitely a doctor. <laughs> I'm a resident and I've been one for years. I am absolutely an anesthesiologist. I did not steal this coat. <laughs> also, I'm not saying that like there are some practices of medicine like that are easier than others. Like I, I wouldn't fuck with any kind, but like anesthesiology, anesthesiology. you don't fuck with that. <laughs> No. <laughs> yeah, no. No. It's like they do their one thing and that's it because you have to do it really well. Yes. Because <laughs> there's no room for air. You can't just like. It's there's, important. There's, it's an important one. Yeah. Yeah. But don't worry. He didn't try to practice anesthesiology. I was going to say, was there a learning curve for this? Like, So he would go around and he said that he was shadowing doctors if anyone asked him. And he would just kind of insert himself into random patient rooms during exams and interviews. 
and just like stand there and be like, I'm shadowing. Is it like in um, Catch Me If You Can where like Leonardo DiCaprio is just in all the operating rooms? Like, yes, I concur. Essentially, yeah. <laughs> That's all you have to do is just be like, yep, total agreement. Gentle chin scratch. Serious <laughs> nod. Look pensive. Somebody mm. says, doctor, should we do blah, blah, blah? And they're like, yes, I concur. That's Leonardo concur. DiCaprio learning how to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Catch me if you yep. can. <laughs> yep. He says that he never claimed to be a doctor while he was shadowing, but people, like in retrospect, were like, yeah, he told me he was a resident. And he got away with this for weeks. Just like nobody noticed. Nobody was like, nobody questioned it. Hey, new, hey, new guy. Like, let's who get are you to know shadowing? You. Like, no one told me you were coming. Like, yeah, no one questioned it. And the way he got caught was because he went into the room of a pregnant woman during her exam, which is fucking creepy. And the actual doctor in the room was like, uh, who the fuck are you? And called the cops. Good. Yeah. I thought that it was going to be like the anesthesiologist who the coat belonged to. Yeah. Like bumped into him (laughs) in the hallway and was like, hey, I've been looking for this. (laughs) Also, who are you? (laughs) So that when the cops came and investigated, they found another coat in Malachi's car with his own name embroidered on it. So he actually like went out like, and got a lab coat made with his own name. <laughs> but he was still wearing the anesthesiology one, I guess, at oh that point. Oh, my God. Well, because uh, it doesn't but, say anesthesiologist on it. I guess Duh. not. They didn't have that at the embroidery shop. Well, I mean, he's shadowing OBGYN anyway, so what the fuck does it matter? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing matters. So imagine being a pregnant woman and then like you're getting an exam and then an anesthesiologist comes into your exam and you're like, where is this going to go? Oh, my God. I would flip the fuck out. (laughs) What am I here for? Well, the anesthesiologist is the one that does the um, the The anesthesiologist is the one that does the whatchamacallit? Epidural. Epidural. Thank you. But I don't know if she was like, do medicine. I know. I I, I brain farted. (laughs) But, like, I don't know if she was at that point. Well, I imagine, like, if it was just a regular exam, yeah. Yeah. Then but I would it's be probably like, the fact that it was a pregnant woman and, like, it's an OBGYN exam, like, that's a really obviously in a intimate hospital, exam. Right? It was yeah. in a hospital, yeah. But it's obviously, like, a very intimate exam. Right. So, like, that's probably when a person would question it. Like, if I was getting myself examined and someone was in the room who I didn't expect to be there, I'd be like, um, who's this guy? You know? Uh, is this the students? Like, I didn't, I didn't consent to students. Like, I don't want the student in here. You is know? this a teaching hospital or would this be like super out of place? I'm not sure. I mean, he claimed to be a resident, so I would assume it's a teaching hospital, but I, I didn't look into that. I'm not sure. Okay. So no charges were placed at this time because police were probably just like, he's a kid. He, you know, he was messing around and he didn't mean any harm. Like, yeah, but he was there you know. for weeks. I don't know. They didn't, no one pressed charges on him. Um, oh St. Mary's, the hospital, like, claimed, like, he never saw any patients, but clearly that can't be true. Well, he did, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, he saw patients, but he maybe didn't treat the patients. Yeah. Just because he's not writing prescriptions. He just wandered around shadowing doctors, then he's visually, with his eyes, saw a lot of patients, but he yes. did not I, interview he, them he was not or the attending anything. I feel like that's definitely... A semantic argument, but okay. Yes. No, he was. He covered his eyes the entire time, wandering around the hospital. I didn't see anything. 
Therefore, I am not legally responsible. Exactly. So flash forward a few months. Now it's December 2015. Anita Morrison is an 86-year-old woman at this point, and she has abdominal pain. She's gone to many specialists. She's not getting better. No one's figuring out exactly what is causing her pain. They can't figure out how to stop it, and she's getting desperate. So she starts looking up online homeopathic and naturopathic doctors. Dun, dun, dun. No. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Turn around. (laughs) And she comes across the New Birth, New Life Medical Center owned by Dr. Love. No, no, that's a red flag. She calls Dr. Love and he does a house call for her. So he comes to her house. He has a stethoscope, his white coat. He examines her and he tells her that her abdominal pain is caused by arthritis. What? That's obvious. I mean, arthritis <laughs> is a disease of the joints. joints. So I'm not yeah. sure. Your, your stomach joint? I am not a doctor, but that does not sound relevant. Your colon like- joint? <laughs> <laughs> that, he says her belly pain super is sensitive by... super sensitive colon joint yeah <laughs> and um he says that he can treat her with vitamins so he goes to the pharmacy and picks up valerian root and melatonin for her brings it back it sounds to her. like it's out of game of thrones like yeah. those are both like you know um supplements and usually they're both used for like sleep i don't know why he picked up those two particular ones. But anyway, he gives them to her. She's not getting better. He sees her like four more times at her house, (laughs) still not getting better. And then one day she calls him and she's in horrific pain. Like it's worse than it's ever been. She's really not able to tolerate it. He comes to her house, realizes that like he's in over his head. Like this is beyond his capabilities. As an 18-year-old with a stethoscope. Literally all of this is over your head, sir. Yes. He's in over his head. He says, I can't help you. Let's call 911. So EMS comes. They pick her up. And he's left alone in her house. And he's like, don't worry. I'll lock up for you. Oh. What? Of course. Yeah. Well, I mean, she trusts him. He's a doctor. Yeah. So, yeah. So he calls the, like, when he calls EMS, too, he's like, I'm Dr. No. Love. And I'm here with my patient, Miss Morrison fucking asshole anyway so she goes off to the hospital he stays in her home locks up supposedly and then he comes to the hospital later to visit her still in his like doctor get up like he walks into this hospital where he doesn't have privileges and his like you know white coat and stethoscope he like wears that a lot too just all the time like running errands he was like running this wearing this white coat i think the lady doth protest too much Mm -hmm. with this outfit and he tells her like you're gonna need a lot of expensive tests done and she's like okay that sucks but like i, I need to figure this out sure which I, he has no he's not ordering tests like he doesn't yeah and, the, and like, he doesn't bet he doesn't get the money from conducting like what is he getting out of this i'm just so curious I, he I just gets to be a doctor he just wants mark, to be a doctor exclamation yeah. point because even if he did helping. manage to order tests at the hospital you like can, he's he no way he any. can order tests yeah. he cannot order tests at this hospital like this is four years ago everything's on the computer like you need a login you need like you know, privileges to even get into the computer. Like, there's no way he's ordering anything. So anyway, he, a specialist came to her later and was like, no, you don't need all these tests. 
And she eventually gets out of the hospital a few days later. And when she gets home, she finds that there's some money missing from her bank account. Shocking. She digs into a little bit and finds that there were two forged checks like that were from her checkbook. One was $500 made out to Dr. Love. Another was $1,200 made out to his clinic. So then she calls the police. The police start investigating. And they also find that he had stolen $29,700 to pay off his car loan, (laughs) $3,000 for a credit card bill, and $1,800 for another credit card bill. All from her? All from her. Literally, like, 30-something thousand dollars. Yeah, he's 18. How many credit card bills does he have? Jesus. Why does he have a $29,000 car? Like, I'm 32 and my car didn't cost me that much. In Hawaii, like, what's... Certainly not. (laughs) He's just living a better life than we are, apparently. Uh, Well, we have moral integrity and don't defraud people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel great about that right now. I speak only for myself. I don't know your lives. (laughs) Yes, you do. Okay. So then... You you know it enough. (laughs) Moving forward about a month. We're now in January of 2016. Wait, wait, wait. But what happened? Did she... We'll get back to her. Are you going to get to it? We'll get back to her. Yeah. So she hasn't done anything. We're we're not done with Anita. We're not done with Anita. We're going to circle back to her, but we're just going to skip ahead in the timeline a little bit because... What happens with her comes a little later. Okay. January 2016. He announces the grand opening party for his new birth, new life medical center. Okay. but So I know you said that you were going to go back to her, but so he just moves. He doesn't get caught or not yet disciplined for anything yet. Or are they letting, that was my are question. They seeing him like just seeing where it goes? This is kind of happening simultaneously. Okay. Like they're digging okay. into him and investigating. So he okay, took yeah. care so of the her in December. Ongoing wasn't just like she got home and reported to the police. Right, right, right. And then the so next like, day, yeah, exactly. Like, Thirty thousand okay. dollars. So he saw her in like December. Now we're just jumping okay. ahead to January. So like okay. investigations are happening. Like he's okay, being. So things are in play. Go right. Ahead. Like things are in play. But this is what he's doing in the meantime before he realizes he's being investigated. He has the grand opening party for his new birth, new life medical center which was located in a real medical plaza that has like multiple offices, like medical offices in it. And the sign on his door says, Dr. Malachi Love Robinson, MD, PhD, HHPC, AMPC, PsyD. So MD, medical what? doctor, PhD, is a PhD, you know, PhD. Yeah, sure. I know AMP is alternative medicine practitioner. I think HHP is like holistic something so he just really went for it yeah he just really dug in yes and side is psychiatry okay the sign indicated that he practiced holistic and urgent care and family counseling and the clinic was licensed by the state of florida and he got approval to take insurance including medicare and medicaid god damn it florida yeah fucking florida (laughs) fucking florida Around this time, a reporter named Terry Parker gets wind of the story because one of Malachi's family members called her and said, uh, something's fishy here. I'm concerned about Malachi. Please look into this. Oh I my. wonder what would ever prompt me 
to call a reporter on a relative rather than yeah, just that's not good. calling the police or addressing the relative directly. Yeah, I don't know I, why they yeah, went straight I definitely to would have a convo with my relative first. Like if I thought it was just sketchy but not a crime, like I would have a convo with the relative, but if I thought it was a crime, like I would go to the police. I don't know why I would go I guess she's like an investigative reporter, so maybe he thought that this person could dig into the details of it without legally getting him in trouble, maybe? maybe. I don't know. I, I'm speculating wildly here. I don't know for sure, but they contacted okay. this reporter. So okay. she shows up at his clinic to interview him without, like, she didn't call ahead, she just shows up. And she finds that the office is completely empty, except for Malachi. He's the only one there. And he's dressed in his white coat with a stethoscope around his neck. (laughs) Wandering around his empty clinic. I think, actually, he does watch too much TV. And he's living in, like, a fantasy world here. He's just, like, playing doctor by himself, but taking it to an extreme. Damn. He says he'll, you know, sit down and talk to her for a little bit, but he takes off the white coat and the stethoscope first, and she has the cameras on. And he's sitting there talking to her for a little bit. So he are, says... Sorry, are they hidden or visible? No, like out in the open. Like okay. he sees the camera. And he starts talking to her. He says he never claimed to be a doctor. He says he is a naturopath and he is working on hiring MDs and PAs to work in his office. That's not what your sign says, bro. Right. Yeah, it's not what all the letters after your name say. Mm-hmm. And as we learned naturopaths actually do attend some kind of school, however bogus that it is. So you shouldn't be claiming yourself to be a naturopath either. That being said, Florida doesn't license naturopaths. So maybe in Florida, you can just like claim to be one. He had board certified certificates on the walls of his office in holistic and alternative medicine. Parker looked into these degrees and they all came from, we found like later she mentions this, not during the interview, but she looks into these degrees and find out that they came from some guy in Colorado who will essentially print anything you want on a diploma verifying your training if you pay him enough money. <laughs> Literally so some guy with a printer. Document. Okay, great. Yes. So like this, his board certifications mean nothing. He didn't take tests. He didn't, you know, complete any necessary requirements. He just like did his own studies, quote unquote, and then like told this guy to print him his diploma paid him money (laughs) that he probably stole from (laughs) Nina Morrison. (laughs) Amazing. He says he's mainly the proprietor of the business. He's not, he says, I'm not doing medical exams. I'm not practicing medicine in this office right now. Even though he's claiming he has these degrees, he's also claiming he's not practicing medicine. And he wants that clinic to become this like holistic alternative medicine practice, which is like alternative to what actual medicine, like which you don't know how to do. So therefore it's alternative. And it just feels questionable. His website claims he treats patients with, quote, air, water, light, heat, earth, phototherapy, food, and herb therapy. What doesn't he do? Medicine. (laughs) Actual (laughs) medicine. (laughs) He treats you with air. (laughs) Amazing. When asked about his education, he says he's kind of very vague. I mean, anytime in any interview I've ever seen with him, I've watched multiple interviews. He's so vague about his training. He'll just say, I've taken courses in blah, blah, blah. Like he said to her in this interview, I've taken courses in Christian training, theology, science, and alternative medicine. And he like stutters hard when he says the word certified. He's like, I'm certified by two boards. Like how many interviews did he do? Like, did he know he didn't have to do these? Yeah. (laughs) 
No. I think there's well, some... You shouldn't be a doctor if you can't figure that out. There's got to be some, like, personality disorder going on here. Like narcissistic yeah, or something yeah. where he just How thinks far can he go? thinks like he's the smartest guy and can just fool these fool everyone well he's he yeah he is you know outpacing everybody and yeah exactly. you know sort of ugh. for a while i think well, he also realizes a very little bit of time i think he also comes to realize quickly that like putting the md there the medical doctor is like that is crossing the a problem. line yeah that is yeah. crossing a line so he says to her during this interview, like, I'm calling myself doctor because of my PhDs in holistic and alternative medicine and in uh, PhDs, two of them, one in holistic and alternative medicine and one in science and theology. And he says he went to two different colleges to get these, but he won't tell her what colleges he went to. He also won't cl- like disclose the names of the MDs that he's been working with, even though he doesn't have an MD himself. And... I mean, doesn't he think yeah. people are going to look into this, like, on his website or something? Yeah. Like, I don't... Yeah. Yeah. And that's what, at this point, he asks to have the cameras turned off. He's like, I'm not comfortable with this anymore. Please turn the cameras off. Mm-hmm. And then later, like, as they're leaving the office, they, like, look at his sign. And it shows that there's, like, a piece of white tape was placed over the MD. <laughs> so, like, that's what I'm saying. He realized that, like, the MD was a... Like they usually see, like the camera zooms in and they just like peel off the piece of tape and it says MD underneath it. (laughs) So like he claims that like that was made in mistake. Like the I didn't tell the sign company to put that there, but like I didn't notice it until you pointed out to me that I am not a doctor. Right. So I think he kind of realized that the MD was crossing the line and like he's like, no, I'm a doctor Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. of my PhDs. I'm not MD. I'm not claiming to be an MD. So like he keeps Mm -hmm. he he pulls back on that and like puts tape over Mm -hmm. his sign. Yeah, but it's a little late for that, buddy. Yeah. He invites her to come back the next day for another interview that he would allow to be recorded. And during this second interview, he's a little more composed, I guess, because he's not on the spot. He talks about, you know, he's been interested in medicine since he was a child. He has a passion for people. Again, he remains vague on his, like, training, but keeps keeps pushing, like, I'm not an MD, I'm not an MD. He says that mm. it was pretty easy to open the practice. It didn't hit many roadblocks there. And he like takes her on a tour of the facility. <laughs> so while oh she's God. like, you know, interviewing him and like digging into this and reporting it on the media, what's going on. He's under investigation. Like mm-hmm. I said, by the police already because of what happened with Anita Morrison. So it all kind of comes to a head all at once. Sure. So okay. an undercover cop makes an appointment at his clinic. They go to the appointment he examines her and then they arrest him because they're like, now you've, we've Practice. caught you. Like, gotcha. It's kind of like, you know, what a, I don't know, like when a, a sex worker, they're like, until the money is exchanged, you can't claim they're right. going to do it. So they had to like actually claim that he did something and not that he was just, he could, otherwise he could just claim, mm-hmm. I'm just playing off. I'm just having office. I'm just playing doctor, like whatever. Yeah. Now he actually examined somebody and like gave medical advice and they were like, you're caught, you're arrested. And Terry Parker was called that day, the reporter. So she shows up while he's being arrested. And he said he won't answer any of her questions. And he just keeps saying to her, like, you will hear from my lawyer. Oh, my God. Does he show up? Is he the lawyer? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Yes. We never see the lawyer, which is, Uh you know, weird. He had a business partner in all this, guys. An adult business partner? An adult business partner named Perseus Wells, who was like his financial backer. At one point, he gets interviewed by Terry Parker, and he's like, 
Malachi told me, like, I knew he was 18, but he told me he was homeschooled. He took all these online courses. Like, this is how he was able and to you do didn't it verify? so young. So, like, this is how people financially backed What's Her Face with the medical company in California. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That blood company. Blood uh, you know, yeah. company. Yeah. And he saw the diplomas. Thera, Thera something. Yeah. 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 We talked about her at one point. Yeah, like he's like, I saw the diplomas. Mm-hmm. He seemed very, you know, he's a very eloquent speaker and he seemed like he he made a, a made sense of why there was this Is gap. He, and he he's can't like, say the word certified. <laughs> but he was also like, listen, guys, like he was his clinic was like licensed by the state of Florida. He he fooled Florida. He fooled the insurance companies. Like this I'm not the only one who fell I for mean. this. He seemed really, he seemed he reliable. He fooled Florida. He fooled Florida. <laughs> well, this guy's also a Floridian, so. So Malachi okay. gets released on bail and he calls a press conference by himself. And he like, of to this press he conference, does. he, it's like at night, like in this field somewhere or something, like in a parking lot, I think. <laughs> what? Um, it's like, in a, like it's in a parking lot, like a patch of grass next to a parking lot. And like his grandfather drives up in the okay. car with him and just like, he just gets out of the car on his own. He's in like a suit. He has no attorney with him and he just like stood alone in front of the cameras and gives this speech about, he's very carefully worded in his speech and he's saying like asking people to respect his family and his privacy, let the lawyers do their job. They're working around the clock. He thanks people for their support. <laughs> he asks for their prayers. And he's like acting like a victim here, of he like does. a martyr. Essentially. Of course he does. Mm-hmm. I cannot. While he's out on bail, for some reason, he goes up to Virginia and tries to buy a Jaguar for $35,000. I'm sorry. <laughs> what? Uh, Is he going to open a zoo? <laughs> no, like, a, no, 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 a car. Oh, sorry. No. <laughs> I totally. Oh. <laughs> I thought you were making fun of Joe Exotic. <laughs> no, no, no. Like no he, I thought like he the bought car, the car, a Jag. A big cat. <laughs> oh, Just amazing. like changing gears. One of the native Virginia Jaguars. <laughs> no, he tries to buy a $35,000 car. I was driving through Pennsylvania this weekend and I passed this road sign that said like zoology camp, like register now. And what? I was like, we're like, who goes what? to zoology camp and who like runs a zoology camp? How do you run a zoology camp without a zoo? And then I noticed that it was like a big cat, like sketchy. Joe Exotic type like <laughs> facility. I'm, I'm I'm not a fan. I do not <laughs> no. like this. Mm-mm. No. Mm-mm-mm-mm. So anyway, he tries to buy this thirty five thousand Jaguar car in Virginia. <laughs> he lists a, his seventy three year old godmother as the co signer for his loan, but they were like, "This is a little suspicious." They contact her, and she's like, "No, I didn't give consent to be his co signer." So then he gets arrested in Virginia. Because he's charged with falsifying information on his credit application and forgery because he forged her signature. And he's sentenced to 10 years in prison. He only serves 16 months and then is sent back to Florida to face his charges for, you know, practicing medicine without a license. I was going to say all of that and that's the only thing he goes to jail for, but never mind. No, that's just like a detour. We take a detour to a Virginia prison and then go back to Florida. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Go ahead. So his lawyers like look into a mental health defense, but he refuses to go that route. He keeps claiming that he's innocent and like doesn't want to go that route and he wants to fight it. But then eventually uh, after all this like fighting and putting up a fuss, he just 
pleads guilty and is sentenced to three and a half years in a maximum security prison, which like, why three and a half years, Florida, for practicing medicine without a license and he gets 10, 10 years 10 for forgery, for Virginia? Yeah. That seems disproportionate. That's just like Flip what those. a joke Florida is, but whatever. Yeah, Go I was going to say, I think if we know which state has their shit together more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Seems pretty evident. He also is ordered to repay all of his victims, which is about 80 grand. So this is like, yeah. I think that includes Anita Morrison and then anyone else who got swindled during his setting up the clinic sure. and anyone he might have treated, etc. So yeah. I don't, I don't know if he's paid anyone back at this point or not, but he was ordered to pay everyone back. Good. Because now he has no income because his clinic is closed. <laughs> so I don't know where he gets also, the money Also, he's from. in jail. Yes. <laughs> He later tells a reporter from prison that he regrets what he did because he messed up his own life a great deal. No, he regrets getting caught. He doesn't say, like, I was doing something no, wrong. I messed up other people's lives. No. Mm-mm. I almost killed yeah. this poor lady because she had a real serious problem yeah. and I told he her. He could have fucking killed her. He, he could have absolutely like, could delayed have. her getting actual care and she could have fucking died. He did delay her getting actual care. <laughs> but I'm like, but I mean, like, I don't know if that led to a bad outcome in terms of like whatever it was, got worse and she has permanent disability from it or whatever. Well, at least financially for the time that she spent in the hospital that potentially could have been avoided. Oh, for sure. For sure. Mm -hmm. But anyway, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he doesn't say like, someone they ask him, do you regret what you did? And he's not like, yeah, it was irresponsible. It was stupid. Like I could have hurt people. It's like, no, I messed up my own life. And he still wants to be a doctor. Uh, Good luck with that. He's a narcissist. Like straight, straight Mm -hmm. up. He was released from prison in September of 2019, and I could not find what he's up to nowadays. Probably yeah, trying to cure coronavirus. That was not that long ago. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He got out a little early. He was scheduled for 2020, but he got out in September. God, I yeah. hope he's not treating people for coronavirus. <laughs> Jeez. I mean, he's doing the same amount of good as Trump at this point. Mm-hmm. This is true. Mm-hmm. So that's my segment. If you're not a sociopath, you can listen to Harpy Hour on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Even if you are a sociopath, please rate us and leave a review. I was going to say, we're not going to discriminate here. You no, can listen. you're right. We're not. Yeah. You can still listen. Just don't be a dick. But sociopaths are the only ones that don't listen. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You gotta be a sociopath to miss an episode. True. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> you can also send us an email. Podcast at gmail.com We love to hear your messages. All that fan mail that's been coming in, you should be part of it. Just droves of it. Droves <laughs> of it. You can also Piles. follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at HarpyHourPod. We are also on Patreon. So any extra money you have lying around, all that money you're not spending going out because you're staying home, just give it to us. We can find some use for it. We Lots have, of use. Yeah, we have extra content. We have GNTs or Goofs and Tangent Reels every month for everyone who is uh, a Patreon. And even if you don't want any of that extra content, it, but you do want a better sounding podcast to listen to, we also need a microphone for Miss Tracy. I don't know what you're talking about. My voice is melodic. Your voice is loud. 
<laughs> yeah. We need yeah. to get her a microphone that doesn't sit right in front of her face so that she can just shout across the room at it and then she'll be at a normal volume. I mean, you guys knew what you signed up for. Yeah. So anyway, thanks for listening. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. bye. bye.